Hello and happy Monday. It is week four of the Alec Murdoch trial, everyone. And the state has made significant progress in building its case against Alec Murdoch. I'm excited to see where the testimony takes us this week and whether we will be hearing from the defense's witnesses soon. As always, Liz, Eric, and I had a lot to catch up on. So without further delay, let's get into it. Well, cups up, guys. How are you doing? Cups up. Good morning. Good morning. It is the end of another long week in the Murdoch murders trial. And I want to start with you, Eric, because yesterday in court, you looked like you were about to jump over the benches right into uh, where Dick was questioning your client, Tony Satterfield, who is Gloria Satterfield's, uh, one of her surviving sons. What was going through your head when he was testifying yesterday? One, I on the one hand, I was uh, very proud of Tony because it 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 took a lot of courage for uh, someone who isn't familiar with the legal system to literally go into court and testify. And that's the first time he's been in court. Even through our cases, we really never were in court. We were either in a mediation setting or a private meeting. And to do that in open court in front of a lot of people that were staring him, including Alex and his family, is one thing. But then when you have the whole world looking at you, um, it really, it's a lot for an ordinary person. Um, I thought Dick was uh, brutally bad. Tell people a little bit about what happened on the stand for Tony. And before. Tony had to tell the story of what happened, the the theft by Alex and Corey Fleming, mostly by Alex, who got 3.45 million of the 4.3, but to talk about his mother's death, to talk about his relationship with um, the Murdoch family, to talk about his trust and love that he had for Alex. And I think as he testified, you saw the betrayal because Alex contacted him in April of 2021, two months before the murder by text. It wasn't initiated by Tony. And he said, hey, Bo, you know, just want to let you know, give you an update on your case. Call me. Um, you know, making progress on it, which is one of the most uh, heinous lies that anybody has ever told because he stole the money a solid two years before, a lion's share of the money. The last theft he did on the settlement was in October of 2020. And on October 6th of 2020, he and Corey Fleming dismissed the action. So there was nothing pending, it, it, you know, it, it, it's one of the most uh, brutal betrayal of people I have ever seen because there was nothing to tell. I mean, it was, it's been completely over. And it really does fit into the narrative of what the state is positing as their motive because this was an external threat. You, Mandy, created that external threat with your November 19th article that you did in the Island Packet and then your April 20th article that you did. It was the first time that Alex now can't control the situation because somebody like Mandy Matney's out there writing about the first part of the settlement of $505,000. And now the family is aware of that after reading your article. So if Alex could control Jeannie Seckinger and could control the people inside his firm, Lee Cope or even Chris Wilson, what he can't control is Mandy Matney. 
and Mandy Matney had his had her teeth in his ass. And he he texted Tony and told a flat out lie and continued doing that over the next couple months, even after the murder in a phone call that Tony had with him in the latter part of June. Um, Dick was incredibly tone deaf. Um, if I was to call this week, if I was to give it a title, I'd say murder by friends and the incredible shrinking man. Harpootlian has just shrunk before our eyes, you know, before getting up and talking about Tony, right. he, we hadn't heard from him in about two and a half days. And you saw how insistent and vociferous Dick was to try to exclude Tony's testimony because they recognized how damaging that would be before the jury. Um, and they tried to make a motion to exclude. Then they tried to make a motion to limit it to a certain extent to what he could say. And Dick was misrepresenting the facts that Tony um, and Alex had contact with each other before the murder. He kept on saying the contact was after the murder, after the murder, and the text messages were right in front of him. He demeaned Tony by calling him a kid. Child. Yeah, that was horrible. Horrible. He's 32 years old. The jury looked over at me. Three of the jurors recognized me when Dick pointed me out as saying that I was his attorney. And I thought it was incredibly insulting when he insinuated, because Tony made a mistake in saying, did Eric tell you about the six and a half million dollar settlement? It actually was more than seven and a half million. Dick got that wrong too. And that probably confused Tony, right? And he did. Yeah. And then Tony said, no. And Dick looked back at me and said, wow, did that happen again? Like insinuating that I didn't even tell Tony about the six and a half million. Yeah, that was so gross. Oh was, my God. It was. And the jury, the jury was wrapped attention. And when Tony added it up, the numbers with Creighton, the 505,000, the 3.8 million, the 4.3 million, that jury was just aghast. And those three jurors who recognized me look over, looked over to me and shook their head. Dick was attacking a victim. To attack a victim, uh, knowing that your client stole. Confessed to stealing. Confessed. He confessed to it. He confessed. It's a better, better term with the confession of judgment, which the very term of the document says confession. So um, Dick, Dick lost the jury and Dick's whatever reputation he has is is whittling away right in front of our eyes. It's the incredible shrinking man. I don't know what to say other than, you know, it's happening before our eyes. Well, one question, Mandy, did it seem to you that Dick was insinuating that Tony was sort of in on it with Alec? That's, that's the feeling I got from watching from where we at the trailer. And that's been a solid uh, narrative that we've seen from trolls in the past two years, year and a half, uh, I don't even know time at this point, but I've seen that with online people who look like they're suspiciously defending the defense. Um, and they've gone after the Satterfields and said that it uh, looks like Tony was in on it, which is just absolutely insane. And I said this on Twitter yesterday, there's a huge difference in a guy like Tony being fooled like Alex Murdoch and a guy like Chris Wilson, who's a lawyer who is trained right. to look out for BS and is trained to know better. Tony Satterfield 
he was told by everybody that Alex could help him and he didn't know any better. I don't blame him whatsoever for trusting Alex. And you could see on the stand, betrayal is the best word for it. Total, utter betrayal. He clearly said, Alex was my lawyer. Sure, Corey was my lawyer, but I, I constantly went to Alex. Alex drafted the probate papers, naming him personal representative. He sent the uh, medical bills and uh, other notifications that he got in connection with his mother's death to Alex. Alex was the one that called him. Alex was the one that texted him. And to insinuate that Tony was somehow a part of this, this kid was, you know, he was deer in the headlights. He doesn't understand legal proceedings. And then the one story that didn't come out was about Brian Harriet. Now, he did say that Brian was a vulnerable adult, and that's why he became PR. Do you know that Alex had the $3.45 million and got notice from the bank that they were foreclosing on Gloria's trailer, which uh, Brian had to live in? And he sat by and let that trailer get foreclosed on, and Brian was kicked out in the street and had to go live with one of his relatives. That's the that's the monster in Alex. He he stole their money and he couldn't even give enough. And the trailer was only valued at sixteen thousand dollars. He couldn't even pay off the trailer for the kid. That's disgusting. I, I it really is. I kept thinking about this yesterday when Tony was saying that Alex told them that they were gonna get a hundred thousand each. How he could have given them such a little amount of money. And that problem would have gone away for them. They would have believed them. They would have believed Alex. And because because he was so greedy, he didn't even give them, I mean, and that, that trailer is just absolutely insane. How he could have told those boys that he was going to help them and then stole their money and let him get kicked out on the streets. It's just Horrific. Ginger Hadwin was interviewed after Tony testified. And she said, the truth is, if the boys were given $5,000 each, they would have thought he hung the moon and would have never believed if anybody uh, said to him that Alex stole money from them, they wouldn't have believed it. Um, let me ask you guys a question. What do you think is happening with Dick? What do you see this week that was different than the other. You know, I've said it's like he came in like a lion and he's gone out like a lamb, like the Ides of March. Do you think he's being benched by Alex or what? what is happening? Is he is he tired or is he sick of Alex? What is going on? I don't know. I think it's just like Mandy has said all along when everyone says, oh, Dick is so great in the courtroom. Mandy's like, I don't think so. I He's not. He's. He's. It can tell he's not. He's just using his good old boy powers and not not actually having to think about how he comes across to people or anything like that. So I think it's just. I think uh, Eric Allen mentioned this yesterday. I think his lawyering methods are so out of touch and just are not useful in the post internet world. Like I think he's used to destroying destroying people like Tony Satterfield on the stand and there's not social media to talk back to him and say you are a bully and a coward and like I think he's just used I think he's so out of touch in so many different ways in the way that he speaks to women the way that he speaks to people like Tony um and it just does not hold up and 
society in 2023. He's like Gregory Peck in 12 Angry Men. You know, they old timey lawyers used to get the rocks off on destroying witnesses and would think that that's how you win at trial. And that makes you a great lawyer. People today like decency. They just want the facts and they don't want you to humiliate and and destroy somebody's uh, entire existence like Dick tried to do to Tony. There was a photo that was taken of Tony after he came off the stand. I hugged him and uh, he looked over at Dick and it was not a flattering photo of Tony, but that's not the point. The point was he looked over at him like, what is wrong with you? Are you not a human being? It had that that's what that photo said to me. And I want to ask you this, Eric. The um, it, uh, One of my lawyer friends was texting me like, what is Dick doing yesterday? And I know that they said, I know he said at the beginning, you don't have to like me, blah, blah, blah. But from my perspective, if I was a member of the jury, Alex looked significantly worse after Dick crossed Tony. Isn't he? He hurt his client. You just said it. Right. He heard his client. The, the, the lawyer committed an unforced error. His client is bad enough when when you're when the testimony is that your client stole three point four five million of four point three million. It, it, they knew it was devastating testimony. That's why they fought so hard. And they know that Mark Tinsley is a devastating witness. That's why they're fighting so hard. So they're smart enough to see it. But there was a way to. To, to handle this and let it go. And the way I would have uh, done this is I would have stood up and said, Tony, you don't want to be here today, do you? And he's, and Tony would have said, no, I, I don't want to be here, Mr. Harpootlian. And he would have said, and I would have said, then I don't have any further questions. And I would have sat down because it's a way that you would have shown decency as a lawyer in a court case. But the way Dick did it, it, it made the $4.3 million theft worse. Sometimes the the best cross is no cross. I have to agree with that. That's actually a good point. Really good point. Yeah. I just want to say this before we move to the next topic, but um, I just keep going back to, um, and I really wish the world could have seen the Russell Lafitte case because it's really great to compare the both. I mean, we reported on the Russell Lafitte case as best as we could, but to see it was just different. Um, but I just keep going back to how Matt Austin crossed all the victims in the Russell Lafitte case, and he was always respectful. He never dug. With humanity. Yeah, he just, and it, again, he didn't, like you said, that was, he did the best cross that he could with them because he's not, you're not going to make any, you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to get anywhere trying to villainize Tony Satterfield. True. And I think one thing, going back to Dick, it, I think transparency plays a huge role in this too, because I think now that we are able to see inside the courtroom, I do think attorneys are going to have to shift how they behave. I mean, you know, obviously this isn't going to be every case that's going to be publicized to this degree and, and everyone watching it like it's the Coliseum or something. But um, I do think that that plays a role, that the more you can, sunlight you can put into what is typically, I mean, it's a public proceeding. It's, you keep saying this, Eric, it's the people's house. This is where we uh, are supposed to be able to see openly somebody being tried, openly court, court procedures uh, are supposed to be open. And I think that the closed door nature of it in South Carolina in particular has sort of led to where we're at right now with Alec, 
Murdoch because these things could be done in the dark. But now that people are watching Dick, now that they've got people watching the comments, and I mean, they are getting market testing in real time, basically, by people commenting on the case. So I think it's interesting to see that it it might be what's at the root of why he hasn't been active in the case in the last few days, because he might be understanding that the public opinion is reflective in some way of the jury's opinion. And that said, I wanted to talk about the bomb threat. What what did you guys make of that bomb threat? I really hope that we hear more. I hope that they can identify who did it and just give everybody a better peace of mind at this as soon as possible. Well, what were your first thoughts? I mean, who... <laughs> Let's just say what we thought. We're I mean, both cynics, Mandy, so I know what your first thought is going to be. So go ahead. <laughs> well, my first thought was like, of course. Yeah, of course. Just on brand for everything. In and the you Murdoch saw his Murders smile. I mean, you stuff. saw like, Alec, Alec gets told why, and he gets this weird little I'll be damned smile on his face. For me, I don't, I, I'm not going to deal with the, 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 the Murdoch angle of it. I'm going to deal with it from the jury's angle. I just, was deathly afraid for the jury. This is a jury that does not, um, I don't think, want to serve. We're seeing a lot of pushback on, um, we lost an uh, alternate juror on Tuesday. We had another juror who said, look, I can't give more than three weeks, and then went back to his boss. Um, when you start having a bomb threat, we can leave. Liz, Mandy, and I can leave the courtroom. But jurors and court personnel and the judge cannot if there's going to be a trial. And we, our main concern was, is this jury intimidated by the Murdoch legacy? Will that influence their uh, deliberations and ultimate verdict? And we're, the jury's still out on that, on whether the Murdoch influence will influence the, uh, the deliberations. But now these people Talk about the mistrial aspect of it with the mistrial. Like, I guess this is the thing. Some people were saying to me that they were impressed that Newman had the presence of mind to keep the jury sequestered and away from Alec because that is the fear, right? That you have a situation like this and the jury ends up seeing the suspect or the defendant with handcuffs. And then that he uses that as grounds for mistrial, correct? Right. It, it's, it, it's the constant... Um, overriding fog, the angel of death, mistrial, mistrial. That's what everybody's guarding against from the prosecution. But Dick and Jim, if the if defense attorney senses that they're losing a trial, and in the court of public opinion, I believe they may be losing this trial, whether they are with the jury or in their own heads, that's a different story. They, they look for every opportunity to scream mistrial. And um, the longer this goes on, the, the more possibility for mistrials, whether it's an Alex situation or it's an unruly witness or, you know, the Mark Tinsley donating, uh, which was so overblown. Let's talk about that, actually. Uh, so this kind of goes hand in hand with uh, the fear aspect of this and and the influence uh, or how the jury views the Murdochs. Shelly Smith, who is Miss Libby's caregiver, Alex's mother's caregiver, gave some powerful testimony. And I think in some ways she might have been the biggest blow. I saw some debate online that says that she did more good for the defense. And I don't know how anyone could arrive at that opinion, honestly. 
but she talked about Alec basically asking her, not asking her, telling her what the truth is of, of his alibi. I was there for 30 or 40 minutes. And we know now from his car data, obviously he was there just 20 minutes. And she knew that and she got scared and called her brother, who is uh, either the assistant chief or the chief of the Varnville Police Department, because she was frightened. And Alec was also telling her that he could help her pay for her wedding, something th something they had never talked about before. And he had insinuated that he could get her a better job at the school district. Sounded like John Gotti, didn't it? Right. And this is a woman who works 24 hours a day, basically. She said she gets up at seven and she goes to her school district job. She gets a goes home, cleans up, takes a couple hour nap, and then goes and, and cares for Miss Libby. And we all know that dementia patients uh, do something called sundowning. They're, they're often up at night and they can wander away. And, and Miss Shelley, that's her job to keep Miss Libby safe and, and, and all of that. So you have Alec introducing himself into her life and doing the thing that we've tried to convey to people that we know exists, which is let's call it the Murdoch special if we're not having a better name right now, but what he did by offering to help pay for that wedding and get her a better job while also telling her what the truth was going to be from his perspective uh, was chilling. It's obstruction of justice, Liz. Let's just call it what it is. It's witness intimidation. It's not, I'm going to do you a nice favor. It's witness intimidation. And it is absolutely should be investigated the same way he should be investigated for what he did in the emergency room after the boating accident and don't kid yourself mark tinsley was talking the truth when he looked at alex at the eye at the trial lawyers convention and said don't you tamper with my jury to me that's the strongest statement i've heard in this trial huge yeah. about the murdoch power that's another attorney Spilling a secret in public of what everybody knows. That's Mark Tinsley not saying it in the back of a, a, a judge's chamber. He's saying it in the open world to hear, don't you tamper with my jury, meaning I know you've done it before. Yeah, and I, I mean, that's, those two things are very, very damning. But the fear with Michelle, I mean, she looked terrified. She was crying. And I think a lot of people were affected personally by her testimony because you could just you just wanted to hug her you just wanted to tell her it was going to be okay it is obstruction of justice and alex didn't have to threaten her he didn't have to her livelihood depended on alex's family and her ability to get along with alex's family so by her doing this i just can't explain enough how brave it is we've talked a lot about how it's different for the three of us to talk on this podcast about how horrible things are in hampton and how feared the murdoch family is etc cetera, etc cetera. these people in hampton like shelly smith their lives literally depend on it that is a bravery that i i mean she should be applauded she I have thought about her every day of this week. Because of the power. It's the power of, you know, I heard that Buster's creating um, uh, situations in the courtroom. They're mad where they can't sit. It's like they, they think they own the world. Buster must be tone deaf at this point. Yeah, that that's a whole other, like the family getting relocated 
is one of the, I want to say one of the top 10 moments for me so far in this, because the indignity of that, like the, the, the fact that they had to be talked to, if that is true, I mean, obviously something happened that they had to be moved. So that's not a good visual for the jury to see. <laughs> um, they have to wonder. Well, why if, did they move them? Why did they move them, we, Liz? Do you think it was because they didn't want them behind the cameras or they no. just felt they were creating a disruption with Alex? There was too much communication, eyes and, and hand communication. I think they were moved. Because somebody like us kept saying we're disgusted oh, sure. by how close in proximity they were to Alex. Well, you just saw, I mean, you could see it yourself on TV even that, I mean, this is the thing. When you're in the courtroom, you do not have as good of a view of things as you do when you're watching it on. So people who are watching this from home, you're really not losing anything other than maybe seeing these people in person, but the jury. Yeah. And then seeing the jury, but you, you get a much better view of the witness. You can hear better and it's more comfortable, but, but additionally you can see the family in a way, cause you can only see the backs of their head if you're in the courtroom. Right. So you got to see that they were passing things. They appeared to be passing things to Dick Harputley and Hey, maybe that's why he shrunk. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe he got talked to too, uh, for facilitating that. But it sounded like it was uh, Alex's sister and um, Buster who were doing the primary communicating. And we've complained about that on this uh, show, too, that we, it just seems like the family gets to have a, a social hour with him for uh, a spell of time after proceedings are done for the day. And touching. And there was a point where Buster passed a phone to Dick Harpulian and... Dick saw something like I, I'm glad that I'm glad that the court addressed it. Um, Me too. If they did, they yeah. and I. But I al also uh, I, I also wonder like if that was anybody else, would they have just been kicked out? We've bounced around a lot in the last two weeks, especially. And it's been very, very hard to get a narrative out of the prosecution. And it's like, at the beginning, Creighton laid out what he was going to say. And, like, the strings were being pulled at and making sense. And people were really excited. Like, more and more is unraveling. This is... And... But I feel like there's been a kind of change in momentum a little bit. Yeah, I have a different opinion about that, because especially um, as a writer, where I believe yeah, in what do you think? middle and in, in an end. I think that we have to be more forgiving. And I am not, I, you know, if I'm going to criticize anyone, it's probably always going to lean toward the government, to be honest with you. But in this case, I can understand the bigger picture. And I hope that people can have something of that in their, I hope that people can look at that too, and have sort of a forgiving nature about this. Because I think the criticism is should more be that it is an un, this is an unwieldy case. And I was talking to a friend about this last night, and it's too big. It's just too big. And that is not the state's fault per se. That is Alex's fault. That is Dick and Jim's fault. He hired attorneys that were going to question every little pebble in the gravel driveway, you know? So that's part of the problem. And that's his that's his right as an American too. You get the best attorney you can afford, right? But 255 plus witnesses, 
when a prosecutor sets out to make his case, he is looking at the story and he's going to make a list of the or the order of witnesses he wants to put them in to, to un unveil that story, right? To, to have it make sense and be cohesive. But when you have 255 witnesses, that's 255 schedules you have to manage. Uh, that is the, and, and it, uh, to top with Judge Newman did not want to rule on the motions in limine prior to the, the trial starting. Had he ruled on those those issues, those core critical issues, I think we would have seen more cohesion. But because it has to come up naturally and then they have to have the in-camera hearings, you end up with schizophrenia because now you're allowed to have the financial people in. Well, okay, now I, these people are available these days. Uh, this person's out of the country for this week. So you, I think that in part is is it. And I think too, we're so used to a week long trial where by day two you've got the timeline expert, you've got the the key, the uh, lead investigator who's able to give you the bigger picture of it. We're far from that because we, because of Dick and Jim and because of the price of this uh, defense, they are creating, they're making the state have to work harder. Yeah, you're seeing Creighton try to run to the finish line like he did yesterday after um, Mark finished testifying and Dick tried to make him commit when he's going to finish, you know, he... He said, I'm going to try to finish by next Wednesday. And obviously a lot depends on cross-examination and what issues come up. But that tells me that he's get he's not going to do bevel the blood and he's going to try to. Well, did you believe him? I didn't believe that. I thought he was just doing the thing where when you're a newspaper, when you're <laughs> writing on deadline, you're like, I'll have it in 10 minutes and everyone knows you're lying. <laughs> Somebody posted on Twitter uh, this academic study or paper, rather, about something called red-collar crime. And a red-collar criminal is somebody who's committed white-collar crimes and uh, in connection with those white-collar crimes has committed some, a violent crime as well, and including murdering your family or murdering a, a member of your family. It is the financial pressure. It is the personality type that Elliot we could, you know, we're not psychologists, but obviously he seems to have a certain personality. Um, take take this too. I I, I sort of evolved my feeling. My feelings on what the motive are and and what was going on in Alex's mind have sort of evolved too as the evidence has been laid out. And I'm starting to see more that there could be an element of him. And I've said this before online and uh, in our chats, but where he felt like a failure as a provider because Maggie and Paul are his two dependents. They're also uh, at the root, Paul is at the root of one of his biggest challenges yet. Uh, he has failed them. And he, he this is all going to come out at some point. He, he even tells Ronnie Crosby that I knew I was going to get caught. He So this is on his mind. If he's talking to Tony Satterfield in April 2021 after the money not to skip around, guys, but I, I have to say this. Have you ever seen money spent as quickly as this man spends money? No. Because you look – I don't think I had an, an idea of how fast he was spending this. I knew he was spending it fast. But just seeing – On what, Liz? I don't know. There's no Ferrari. There's no airplane. There's <laughs> we don't no know. Paris apartment. Tell me what he's spending it on. I mean – 
he had uh, he got his bonus from PMPED in January 2021. He gets a hundred fifty thousand dollar loan from Johnny Parker in March or something of 2021. Then he gets the the Hirschberger fee, the the Ferris, the almost eight hundred thousand dollars from the Ferris fee. It's all gone by June 7th. And and not only that, but to see then that 300 and some odd thousand dollar overdraft, what the heck was he spending on after that? Like, and the urgency that he had in those text messages to Chris Wilson. Doesn't it smell like he's being blackmailed? That's a heck of a blackmail. Don't you see that, that, that there's going to be a component of that, the way that he was so frenetic? I smell blackmail that at any second he lived in fear that he was going to be outed for something. Yeah, it's got to be something. The Chris Wilson texts, I think, were just bizarre because the way they were worded and he then at the end he calls him, you're my hero. And that might just be narcissistic manipulation. But at the same time, there was just such, it seemed like... Alec was in a desperate situation for that money, and I don't understand why. Just don't. Did you see the hero worshiping of Chris to Alex? Like, it just felt like Chris, his whole life, worshipped Alex. A lot of people did. It was very similar to what Russell Lafitte said on the stand. Like, Russell Lafitte was also, I don't want to say, like, it they both described a man crush. I'm sorry, but that's what it was. Like that's right. Starstruck. You're right. Yeah, they both did. They both both Chris and Russell. It's like, oh, Alex just had this way with people, and he was just so right. I'm just so in awe of all the things. Like it's just weird, but I think that that Alex used that ability that people were in awe of him to manipulate them. And that's interesting about that is his personality is what got him in trouble with the Beach family because had he not been so Alec-y in the aftermath of Mallory's death, I think that this would look a lot different. But he forced himself upon the Beach family because he wanted to keep, again, keep these people in his circle tight and and make him them think that he's this all uh powerful fixer and he's gonna get we're gonna take care of you kind of thing but for him he came at them full force with his personality and to them that was insulting because here their daughter's dead because of something his kid did and he's just totally making it seem like everything's fine and so it was a moment for them i think when they realized that like we need this guy to feel punished we need him to understand that things need to change in the future so Alex's personality also, I think, uh, flipped on him. And Folks, Liz just coined a new adjective that um, Miriam Webster will put in their 16th unabridged new version, Alecky. Alecky, yeah. A new word. He acted all Alecky. What we were talking about earlier, Dick has been... Uh, sort of AWOL during testimony, uh, not doing cross. And that could simply be because he didn't have his witnesses come up. But we saw him again on Friday. And uh, Mandy, you and I have had a lot of conversations about Dick and John Metters, who is the gentleman that they brought in on the prosecution side because he has tried a murder case against Dick before and was successful. Um and we we sort of had a conversation about how both Dick and this guy, John Metters, have this old school style. And we saw a lot of that on Friday. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I called it alpha male energy. It was too much. Right. <laughs> um, they were just like, 
They both have this style of lawyering where they speak over people. They get too close to people's spaces. They, I mean, I did not like the way Metters was so close to Blanca. And like, he always kind of touches the female witnesses. I don't know yeah. if you've noticed that. Like, he gets really close in their space. I have, And yeah. with me, some... It's almost like he's standing behind them, too. Did you notice that? Like, he keeps going behind them on the stand, which is odd. Like, hovering over them. Yeah. It's It just makes, as a woman, it makes me feel very uncomfortable for the female witnesses. Because we've all been in those situations when men just hover and they get oddly close. And they don't even know that they're doing it. But it just makes you feel... Like the weaker person, like the smaller person, and like you just don't have control. And I just don't like that style. And I think you pointed out how Metters a couple times when he was objecting, it just looked bad. Um, it was like senseless. Wasn't that you? I yeah. I just actually was on the phone with um, one of our friends in this, and I was telling him about how. It seems like Metters is like an ADHD sixth grader who the teacher's like, does anyone know the answer? Does anyone know the answer? And he jumps up and is like, oh, I do. Like, And then doesn't have it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like this sort of like desperate or like he's playing a game show or something and trying to hit the button faster, like the way he objects because he just jumps right up and he's like, objection. And it's like right. that not, not having control of his sort of emotional projection there. I feel like with the jury makes it look like he's trying to stop the defense from saying something that that will ruin the whole state's whole theory of Alec killing his wife and son. But really what he's doing is objecting for technical reasons. Uh, but I think a lot of it just goes back to they're both used to lawyering, seem to be used to lawyering in a different world where it's just like who can – out alpha male the other lawyer and scream louder at the witness and be more and it just doesn't come off as great and speaking of that Blanca yeah let's talk about Blanca that was so crazy so for people uh maybe we've I don't know if we've ever said this on the record or what but for so long when we first started hearing the name Blanca it was so confusing because there's more than one Blanca not just in Hampton County, that sounds stupid to say, but there's more than one Blanca tied to this story. So there's the Blanca that works at Palmetto State Bank, and she is, I believe, an assistant to Russell Lafeter was. Uh, and then there's this Blanca, and her name has come up in so many different places, and we kept calling her the mysterious Blanca. But we finally got to meet her. You know, it's just interesting, Mindy, I don't, like I get a little nervous when these people get up on the stand because... I know the power. And we've seen it. The people who are watching this who have no idea anything about the Murdochs or understand the cultural significance of them here in the low country, you can see the fear. You could see it in Shelly Smith. You could see it eat Blanca. You could see it in um, the other caretaker. Uh, I forget her name that that testified on Friday. Um, for Who's, yeah. And Annette. And Annette, Yeah. Yeah, and so you can see that fear, and you, but you still don't know if who's still a loyalist or who is going to be honest. And I think a lot of them are are locked in by their original statements to law enforcement, and 
maybe there's other reasons why they're they are testifying for the state. I'm not sure. But it seems like they've been fairly honest. And Blanca is is I would count her among those. Both of our opinions of Blanca kind of changed a little bit um after oh, seeing her on the so. stand yeah. yesterday. Um I always thought that she was Team Murdoch. I always thought that she was working behind the scenes for Alex in some ways because of what we heard on the jailhouse phone calls. What I saw yesterday on the stand was a woman who was terrified of Alex Murdoch and a woman that probably knew that she knew too much and didn't know how to get out of it. So with Blanca, Mandy, do you want to just give us a little bit of like the highlights of what you were either shocked by or what you think is damning to Alec, et cetera? Sure, a couple things. Um, Blanca, I think the most shocking part of her testimony was her describing going to Moselle the day after the murder, the morning after the murders. And first of all, I think I am just shocked that SLED did not shut that house down. I mean, and I'm also confused at the amount of lawyers that were around there that weren't concerned by that. I mean, that was a crime scene. The fact that this, that we have to have this woman tell us about where the towels were and tell us about what the t-shirts look like. I mean, it should have been an evidence documented, but from her perspective, she painted a scene like something was really weird in the house and maybe it sounded like Alex took a shower that night. Did you get that? And rushed to pull a t-shirt? I wish they had done was better establish the timeline of when Blanca was there. I understand it was early in the morning. Yeah, but what time? What time? And then I don't know... When she says sled, I mean, he asked her if sled was there when she saw. So she sees a pool of water that indicates that somebody took a shower in the master bathroom. She sees a, um, the khakis on the ground and um, she sees like disruption in like the T-shirt pile and the short pile. And she knows that lady knew clothes, by the way. Like that was the funny thing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she she had like a photographic memory of where everything Mm-hmm. was everything she knew Maggie's clothes she was stylishly dressed yes and she I mean she knew every and then that's another thing that we have to mention about Blanca I mean and we told people on the podcast but we're not ignoring this um Blanca did make a Poshmark site and selling Maggie's uh clothes and we don't know if she, if somebody told her to do that, we don't, Maggie's family could have told her to do that for all we know. She seemed like she was a good friend to Maggie though. She did. I yeah. mean, she seemed to actually, she seemed to yeah. really, that was the first person who actually seemed right. to really care about Maggie on the stand. Yeah, that was um really actually long time coming. Now Blanca is the second person saying that Alec was trying to, through power of suggestion or whatever we want to call it, get her to corroborate his story on the alibi as it is through the clothing. So he, uh, in August, uh, apparently realizes that SLED has a video showing him in the Snapchat, uh, Paul Snapchat, wearing a different outfit than he was the night of the murders. And he gets very disturbed by this, which you and I were saying, like, why would that disturb you if you didn't kill them? I Like, you, if you didn't do it, you didn't do it. He's like worried about it. That's the thing that makes me suspicious. And wasn't he trying to buy another one of 
the shirt that he was wearing in the that video? seemed to be what she was saying. Yeah. So, Eric, what what are your thoughts on Blanca's testimony, and what what are some of the things that you picked up on there? Why was he paying Blanca? Almost $72,000 a year. Somebody better start asking that question because that is a lot of money. One, I'd like to know, was W-2 wages taken out of that money? Was she paid in cash? But she was a very impressive witness. She has a very impressive law enforcement background and a correctional background. She's extremely well-spoken. And it's clear that she had a very good affinity for Maggie and even... Alex to some extent. And she put Alex in context to the um, uh, hurricane lifestyle that he lived, the Tasmanian devil type of lifestyle where everything is haphazard. Um, What she did testify to was what happened after the murder. She came back in and she said, Everything was put in the refrigerator from the night before from the dinner, which, according to her, that was never done. Now, Harputlian explained that by, well, there was a lot of men and lawyers at the house after the murder the night before. And so it was polite for them to put food away. But what she said, which was deadly, was that that, um, Maggie's underwear and her pajamas were neatly folded and laid out in the doorway, which is the most strangest thing in the world. The other thing she said is she never saw the Columbia-style shirt that he was wearing in the Snapchat video ever again or the shoes that he was wearing. But what we do know is later on, he came to her and put the grips on her the same way he did to Shelly Smith when he said to her, you know, I was wearing a Vineyard Vine shirt. I wasn't wearing a Columbia shirt. And Harputlian tried to say, well, it doesn't say Columbia on it. I don't think she was saying it was a Columbia shirt. She was just saying it was a Columbia style shirt, that button down kind of blousy fishing short sleeve shirt. And she said she never saw it again. And we will be right back. So we got to see the second part of Mark Tinsley, Zero Dark Tinsley's testimony on Friday morning. And it sort of set uh, it set me off. I don't know about you guys. Uh, Mandy, what are your thoughts on Mark's testimony? I uh, am with you. I really thought, I mean... It was very smart of the defense to, as soon as they were getting, as soon as they got shut down by one question, to just back out of it. Yeah. Um, But you made this point. It would have been really great to see, for the jury to see what a freight train Mark Tinsley is. And I don't think that they saw that this round um, because the defense chose to back out. I think he made great sense for the jury of the financial pressure. I think I think that they'll respond to that. I think the jury will respond to Mark, and I think that they'll get it. Um, it was just better the first time, and it's very hard to duplicate that. <laughs> it was better the first time. I think that – so on Thursday night, we ended with Creighton uh, – 
with the, the defense objecting to Creighton's line of questioning, which included getting into the fact that Mark had gotten with Alec, basically told Alec, if you fix the juries, I will add Maggie and Paul. I will put Ma- I will sue Maggie and Paul in Beaufort County where he has less control over the outcomes, where Alec has less control over the outcomes. That is important. And uh, I know why the defense doesn't want the jury to hear that. But I think had Crane, I think he, I don't know if he got a little shaken by that because they started to talk about him getting in the weeds. You and I both know that Mark is just a very thorough, precise person. And he always wants to tell you the root of, he wants to explain so that you can like understand what the meaning of what he's saying is. He wants to make sure that you're getting that. So he's going to give you a lot of detail. And I think Creighton probably is similar personality. I don't know him personally, so I don't know. But uh, it seems from this case that he is. So I will say, like, yes, the testimony did get a little in the weeds on Thursday. But I wish that Creighton had come back on on Friday morning and with not having been shaken by that at all. Because I feel like he glossed over a lot. And I think the jury needed to hear however you want to phrase it about fixing the jury. But I will say it occurred to me that the state is going to have a rebuttal case. So at the after the defense has their witnesses go, the state can come back around with uh, their witnesses again. And I hope they do consider bringing Mark back because he it is such a it is such the cornerstone of why we think Alec might have been so tightly wound and pressured. I uh, posted on Twitter about this the other day. They they keep trying to hint at the Murdochs being victims after in the wake of the boat crash. Right. And that is not the look that they think it that is so far from the truth. They they ask people like the the community turn their backs on the Murdoch family. And it, that that's not what happened in the wake of the boat crash. Like the community was so tired of the Murdoch's fam of the Murdoch family, and they were they all heard what Alex did at the hospital that night. They all heard of the scene manipulation. They all heard, and they all s- believed that Paul was going to get away with it because they get away with everything. And- I totally agree. And obviously, we we haven't seen any evidence that there were any serious threats against him in the way of police reports or even his friends being able to articulate specific threats. Uh, Right. So, uh, but um, Eric, just talk a little bit to us about uh, the defense's decision, obviously not to, I think the defense went up there thinking that they were going to question Mark for longer than they did. And I think it was very clear that Mark, uh, I mean, do we think he was pretending not to hear Phil Barber when he was reading from that email? Um, so just talk a little bit about your thoughts on on Mark Tinsley's uh, testimony, what you think it did for the case. Mark Tinsley is just captivating for all of us. His demeanor, his uh, steadfast loyalty to the Beach family is admirable, and his willingness to go toe-to-toe with anybody that will get in his grill is just amazing to me. And, you know, yesterday's testimony reminded me of a famous saying, there's nothing to be learned from the second kick of a mule. And Phil Barber didn't want a haircut yesterday, as opposed to earlier in the week when he questioned Mark and really had his hat handed to him. He asked one question and got out of Dodge. So for me, they knew that Mark, under cross-examination, 
was more deadly even to them than answering questions under direct examination from the state. But I thought what Mark said on a number of levels was really powerful. One, he casually slipped in that there was no life insurance, none for Maggie, none for Paul, and none for Alex. And that's a major problem for the pending criminal charges that stem from the Labor Day shooting, because the entire purpose of that Labor Day shooting, according to Harputlian, who has said it not only in the media, but in open court. And let me explain to you, when somebody who's your lawyer makes a statement in open court, it's called an attorney admission, a judicial admission, and you are stopped, which is a Latin term, E-S-T-O-P-P-E-D, or in English, prevented from denying the truth of that statement in any future proceeding. So he's got pending criminal charges in connection with insurance fraud. When now we know there wasn't even an insurance policy in place. So everything that we suspected that that Labor Day shooting, quote shooting, was a fixed shooting, that all it was meant to do was to, so Alex can traffic the narrative, somebody out is out there who's trying to kill me and my family. Well, we always, all of us, knew that was false because if Alex really believed that his family was in danger, he would never have let Buster walk the streets of Columbia, South Carolina in Rock Hill where he lived after June 7th of 2021. He wouldn't have let John Marvin walk the street. He wouldn't have let Randolph walk the street or his sister Lynn. He would have gathered everybody up and gone to law enforcement and said, here's what ha is happening. Somebody is trying to kill my family and me. So everything that Alex does is a complete fabrication. The second really powerful uh, testimony from Mark was about Danny Henderson. Danny Henderson is a partner in the old PMPED and the new Parker Law Group. And he acted as Alex's attorney, zealously representing him, according to Mark Tinsley, uh, intimately aware of everything that was happening in the Mallory Beach proceedings, intimately aware of Mark's desire and insistence on getting those financial documents and financial information. What was interesting is Mark said, Alex was deathly afraid of having to produce that financial information. Not so much for Mark's purposes, but Danny Henderson, on behalf of the firm, would have found out that Alex was in the red. What do I mean by in the red? He was upside down financially. This wasn't a guy that, uh, that legitimately had a lot of disclosed wealth that you could put on a financial statement. Yes, he owned Mazelle. Yes, he had a car. He had some money. The problem was it was all collateralized, which means secured in favor of the banks. He actually was underwater. If those finances would have been produced, they would have seen Alex was overdrafted at Palmetto State Bank almost between, at that time, one hundred and fifty dollars to $350,000.
armed with that information, Danny Henderson would have been duty bound to go back to the partnership and would have disclosed that. And then the partners would have realized, oh my goodness, that fee? Now we really know that he was taking that fee because he's broke. So that the 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 fear in Alex in disclosing the financial information was more palpable and real for him as to his relationship with the law firm as much as it was to have um, the human terrorist Mark Tinsley breathing down his throat. That's what was so powerful to me. Mandy, do you have any concerns going into week four, like or thoughts? It doesn't necessarily have to be concerns, but going in, we're going into week four and what's on your mind? I would like more again, that's kind of the same thing with loose ends. Um, there's a lot of loose ends from the prosecution. There's a lot of really long, detailed, boring for lack of better <laughs> better word, testimony that it's hard to pay attention to. It's hard to understand. I would like to see more visuals. I wish that they would emphasize more points. I wish that, um, and I think that they're doing a better job of building a narrative. Um, and maybe on Monday I'll be wrong and they'll tie up all these loose ends and a nice little bow, who knows. But um, I just, I, I'm concerned that a lot of people are like, they got them good on the finances, but let's get to the facts of the of the case. And and the other reality of this is this case is just so incredibly complicated, and it's very hard to compare it with anything else. They have a lot of ground to cover, right? And the motive is complicated. It's believable, but it's complicated. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine who's an investigator, and he was just it, he sort of got brought me down a little bit because he was just talking about how the the state needs to keep things simple. And that they have done the exact opposite of that, and which is true. But I don't know how you keep it simple when you're dealing with so many factors. So my worry is that uh, the state is going to pay attention to all the people out there saying that they have a messy case or they're it's too like they don't they haven't put it all together yet. I don't I don't want them to rush any aspect of this sort of like what seemed like it happened on Friday morning. So I just don't want them to react to that. I want them to stay on course uh, as much as possible um, and do what they think they have to do. Yeah, and this is this is convicting somebody of murder and taking their life away. I mean, it's going to take a while. Um, it should take a while. It should take a while, and that's something that I'm realizing too. Like a lot of a lot of these other huge trials of the century took months and months and months, and especially when you have a very expensive defense team that picks apart every little piece of evidence. 100%. And we're talking about two systems of justice. You kind of, if you were accused of a murder that you didn't do, you of course would want to go over every little piece of evidence. So most murder trials in the state, either or murder charges, don't go to trial because they plead guilty to something maybe less than that, uh, like manslaughter, or they go to trial and they last a week because most of the defendants have public defenders and they just simply don't have the budget for this kind of case. So you're not gonna see this ever, in, in, for a very long time, again, this, this type of trial. But it is, 
you would want your lawyer to be this thorough, right? You would want them to question all of that stuff. So that's what makes it hard when we're having these conversations, because obviously we're advocates for there to be one system of justice. Uh, but is it practical for every uh, defendant out there to have this kind of legal response in, in their defense? I'm interested in Eric's views on these on this too, because and this kind of ties into the GoFundMe, because something that I just kept thinking about with all of these people so upset, like, why would anybody donate to this GoFundMe that's influencing the case, blah, blah, blah. Money is already such a huge factor of this case, and we cannot pretend like it's not. Um, and it's and so far money has 100% favored the defense. Um, there's no amount. And if somebody's telling the truth and they get money for it afterwards, as long as they're telling the truth, that's what matters. And I just think that people were misunderstanding that. I think so, too. I think it is weird. It looks weird. I shared, obviously, Miss Shelley's. It looks weird. It's a bad it's a bad optic. But I get it. Totally get that. But I I. I do think that one that uh, that GoFundMe came about organically in response to the fear and terror. Miss Shelley's testimony took a lot of bravery, and I I just think that there was an emotional response that people had because they then that was the first view that everyone in the world was getting of what it is like down here when we talk about the Murdoch family. We as reporters have seen that that reaction that Miss Shelley has or had. Um, so it, that wasn't new to us, we were just, but it was nice to see it so everyone else could see it. But that came about organically. It's not something like prearranged, like, oh, you're going to get – if you do this, you're going to get the world to respond to you and get a GoFundMe. So Right. And she wouldn't – none of these people would think about that. Like – No. Mm -mm. No. And no. It's a natural response for people to see somebody like Shelly and want to – and say, how can I help her? She did the right thing. I want to reward that. Absolutely. Um, I want to – I want her to be in a position where she's not working 24 hours a day. Eric, what are some of your thoughts and concerns going into week four? Now, we've talked about that they're jumping around between murder witnesses and then character witnesses, the, the witnesses on stealing money and going back to Blanca. I thought the FBI telephone witness on Friday was very interesting. That guy really understood how your phone interacts with towers. Now, I will tell you this. You really don't end on a Friday afternoon with a highly technical scientific expert like that. The jury's tired. They just ate lunch. We always know what it's like after you eat lunch at about 2, 3 o'clock. We start to yawn. We get a little bit tired. They're obviously thinking about how much they have to get done when they get home. They got to shop for the weekend for their family. They got to, you know, return emails from work. So I'm not sure the value of his testimony. It has to work in conjunction with the phone mapping. And we've talked about you're asking the jury to connect his testimony with testimony that was given the week before, which can be a little bit difficult for a jury to do that hasn't taken notes. Remember what we're always saying, the state puts on a witness, they take us to the edge of our seats, and then we have we expel our air because they don't make the loop. They don't finish the loop on what they're trying to say. And then they bring a witness, maybe six or seven witnesses later, to close that loop. We would kind of like to see them raise an issue and close the loop with the next witness. So the other interesting thing is that 
The state seemed to say that they're going to finish their case by Wednesday. Um, they, they don't want to be held, you know, that that's in stone. But clearly, there are shortening their witness list. Uh, they've done about 45, 44 witnesses. They put 240 on their um, witness list. And the only I see really um, home run witness or a witness just going to captivate the world is Cousin Eddie. And I will tell you this. This is an interesting tidbit. When I left the courtroom on Friday and I went and I interviewed um, on TV, out to the left of me came Cousin Eddie's attorney. And she came up and she hugged me and I said, hey, how you doing? And she said, I'm doing fine. I said, what are you doing here? And she said, oh, I'm doing some interviews. And I said, do you think they're um, gonna put Cousin Eddie up? And she said, I do believe so. It may be Monday. Well, guys, I think that is it. I, th I think we talked about a lot. It's a lot to cover. So going into week four, uh, we hope to see more of you guys on our live stream chat. We've been having a, a good time talking with everyone there. Don't forget to rate and review us. Uh, again, we we rate us how you want to, but we like five stars. Those are our favorite. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for listening. And for me, it's cups down. Cups down. Cups down. This Cup of Justice episode is created and hosted by me, Mandy Matney, with co-host Liz Farrell, our executive editor, and Eric Bland, attorney at law, a.k.a. the Jackhammer of Justice. From Luna Shark Productions. 